1: He tēnei nā te reo irirangi o this series contains references to death and trauma associated with the Canterbury earthquakes and may be upsetting to some listeners.
2: Well, I don't work Tuesdays, so I was at home and um, my brother was staying. Here was on holiday from Scotland, but he'd been out for a month or so. So I put the kids down for their lunchtime
1: sleep, and he said, oh, look, I'll look after them, you go off for a wrap. That's Morag Aldridge. She lives in Sumner, a seaside township about 20 minutes east of central Christchurch. So that was a real treat for me. I was going to do Captain Thomas's track,
2: and the old access to it is up a zigzag track,
1: just opposite Van Ash School. It's a bit before one o'clock in the afternoon, an average kind of day, not too hot, not too cold. It's a Tuesday, February the 22nd, 2011. So literally, I just sort of started onto the zigzag
2: track and was on the last corner before it joins the the proper track when the earthquake hit. And it just felt like a wave and threw me to the ground, and I was sort of of on all fours, and I could feel it just going, this noise, going across the valley and over towards Littleton. I thought, oh, God, that... uh, Is that what an aftershock feels like when you're outside? Because I hadn't actually been outside during
1: an an aftershock. I thought, is that what it feels like when you're on, on land? Five months earlier, on September the 4th, 2010, a 7.1 magnitude earthquake struck near Charing Cross on the Canterbury Plains, about 40 kilometres west of Christchurch. Luckily, it hit at 4.35 in the morning and no one was killed, but it marked the start of thousands of aftershocks. And I sort of got up and thought, do I keep on running or... I
2: mean, at that point, I, I really thought it wasn't a big thing, you know. And then I just heard this massive crack above my head and this <laughs> and a rumble. And I couldn't see anything because I was still sort of in the in the bush. But in my mind, there was no other question. You know, it was a rock fall and it was above me. And I had to get out.
1: I'm Katie Gossett, and this is Fragments, first-hand accounts of the February 2011 earthquake. We've all got a story, those of us who were in Christchurch that day, and some of us have probably told our stories many times to our friends and family. We've got used to them, and they've come to define the day for us. But the thing is, we're all talking about the same day. Our stories unfold simultaneously. They overlap. People cross paths and help each other. So our accounts are all fragments of the same story. All little pieces of a bigger narrative. The story of a broken city and the loss of 185 lives after an earthquake strikes at 12.51 on that weekday afternoon. Its epicentre about seven southeast of central Christchurch, under the city's port hills. These interviews, recorded just a few months after that devastating 6.3 magnitude quake, take us back to February the 22nd, as witnesses, in their own words, relive the fear and tell us what they see, who they meet and how they feel.
3: My biggest fear was for my daughter because I knew she was in there, in the old brick building.
4: and I thought, please God, don't let there be a tsunami. Because there was nowhere to go to get away
2: from it.
5: Every aftershock, we were out on the hillside. It was, you know, oh, there's rocks cabbing and pointing in which direction for us to run to get away from them.
2: I must admit, at that moment, I thought, it. I've just, I've run out of time and I just
1: felt I'm going to die. Episode 1, The Hills.
3: Well, I had a call from my German friend who supplies fish to the superliner called the Europa. Now that comes into Littleton one day, once a year, and offloads passengers for the day and they go into Christchurch sightseeing. And he had quite a large order of fish and wanted me to help.
1: Brent Fraser, probably better known to Christchurch people, as a TV journalist.
3: And then after we completed that, the captain yelled out, would you like to come for lunch? I'd like to host you for lunch. And I thought, well, that would be very nice because this was a ship, basically have two levels of apartments, beautiful, and a lot of rich tycoons from Germany on it. And I thought, well, I've never been on a ship like that, so of course I'd like to go. But when I got on board, it was so luxurious, I said to the captain, would you mind showing me around first? And he said, sure. They had part of the Vienna choir there, and they were rehearsing in different rooms, and it was just so palatial. And anyway, we opened the ballroom doors. And then with that, I swear, the ship lifted about a metre up, down, up, down twice, and then just shuddered like hell, and some of the ceiling tiles were falling out, and a couple of chandeliers had come down. And he said, what was that? And I said, well, I think it was an earthquake. And he said, no, don't be stupid, it can't be an earthquake, we're on the sea. And I said, well, look outside the window. I could see it had ceiling-to-floor plate glass windows, and I could see the hills right round Littleton starting to peel away. And then when I walked over to the window, I saw the Timeball building starting to collapse.
1: Up until 1934, the historic Timeball had been used to signal the time to ships in the harbour. That technology then got replaced by radio signals. But at the time of the quake, it's thought to be one of only five working Timeball stations in the world.
3: So we watched that, and I said it was definitely an earthquake, and it was huge. And then, of course, that was followed by a lot of aftershocks. And, of course, what we didn't realise at the time, we were very close to the epicentre, I think about three kilometres from it. And as it turns out, the sea floor has actually lifted by two metres in the inner
4: harbour. Tuesday, the 22nd of February, was a, a day like most other days. It started out like most other days. That's June Barrett
1: mapping out her day.
4: And I decided I would um, take advantage of um, the opera film being on at the Hollywood Cinema in, in Sumner. And I'd go out. I'd be very good. I'd go out on the bus using my gold card instead of taking the car all the way out there. And so um, I went into the city, first of all, and I went into the cathedral, the Anglican cathedral, and I thought I would stay and, for the healing service at 5 past 12. But something made me not stay and I caught the number three bus out to Sumner. And it was a nice day, I seem to recall. On the way out there, I remember looking across at the estuary and saying to myself, where are the birds? Because I had been out there on Sunday night for the farewell to the Godwits. Where have all the birds gone? There were none, and there were thousands there Sunday night. I couldn't believe it. But it didn't occur to me why they had gone. They were just gone. And I got to Sumner at 12.30, just after 12.30, and I went immediately to the cinema to buy my ticket.
1: The theatre isn't open yet, so June goes across the road into the Nurse Maud charity shop. I thought, well, I'll look for a sweater for winter.
4: And I was in there when the floor came up and whacked me into the wall, which broke a crown in my mouth and buckled my glasses and it was a very violent shake and my thoughts were, it has to be, the Alpine fault has gone. We got out, there was, I think, one other customer and three or four assistants in the shop. We got outside and I recall cuddling and comforting an older lady who was in the shop, who was an assistant, who was very very distressed and who wanted to drive home and I tried to calm her and say you can't go anywhere at the moment just be still and while I was holding her I looked behind me because the ground continued to shake violently and the the noise and everything and I looked behind me at one stage and there was the sea wall and some the beach and I thought please God don't let there be a tsunami because there was nowhere to go to get away from it. But the noise that day, the, the dust from the cliffs, the cliffs that had fallen, um, the noise and the, the dust was miles in the air, the red dust, and the screams and the sirens. It was just, just horrendous. But we didn't know what had, what had happened. Had no idea was Littleton.
1: And up the back of Sumner, on the rim of the old Banks Peninsula volcano, rocks are also hurtling down the Captain Thomas track. And
2: I I thought, well I can't run ahead, because that's going uphill towards noise,
1: so I have to run back. And Morag Aldridge is making a split-second, possibly life-changing decision about her next move. So I just absolutely bolted and started heading, and I got round
2: one corner, was heading towards the next. And it was strange because I was absolutely unaware of anything except escape. You know, I just thought, I could feel it right there, and I just thought, oh, I have to get out. So I wasn't aware of any anything going on anywhere else in, in, around me. So I got round the one corner, headed towards the next, and then, I don't know what it was, but I could Tell, I'd just run out of time. I could tell I, it was right there, and I think it was noise. Um, I think probably some rocks went past, and you know, I vibrations, whatever it was. All my senses told me that was it. I must admit, at that moment, I thought that's it. I've just I've run out of time, and I just felt. I'm going to die. I just thought that was the end. I didn't I I didn't feel scared. I just felt really sad about the kids and that I just put them down and you know it hadn't been any you know it was just felt like but I haven't haven't had enough time with them. And so I knew I didn't I knew I didn't have time to run. I knew if I stayed still I was a goner and then the only thing I sort of saw was that where I was, the coroner was cut away into the hillside of it. so it was probably about a metre high. And I don't know how I made the decision, but I just found myself curled up in a ball, just hand over my head, curled up into the side. And then next second, there was just this just noise and stuff coming over my head and all around me and I could feel things sort of hitting the hillside and pushing me off and, you know, dust flying up into my face and then that probably lasted about five seconds and then this tree fell on me and there were sort of branches scratching my face and I'd I mean, I was just totally hyperventilating just and yeah, I was Totally braced for the impact. I just thought, when's the when's the big rock coming?
5: Well, at, at the time, I'd uh, just arrived up at the Grant Thornton building in the um, Cathedral Square there. So I got up there at about 12.49, just come up in the lifts.
1: This is Mark Forster, General Manager of the Christchurch Gondola.
5: Sat down at the desk with the laptop and uh, everything started to shake and door flew off. and Ceiling fell in, and there was two of us in the um, in the office here at the time. We both sort of looked at each other and thought, "Well, this will stop soon," and uh, obviously carried on. And our cat's obviously a little bit bigger than what we first expected. Um, This sort of the ceiling and the um, hallway started to fall down at that time as well. So we were thinking our cat's probably a little bit worse than what we were probably going to expect.
1: While others are running from the cliffs and the rock fall, he's going to need to head for the hills.
5: Obviously, the stairwell was um, was no power, so no lights, no emergency lighting on, so you couldn't see where you were going. Um, there was water coming through the stairs, obviously from broken pipes. So, you know, you're walking down there. and I, I vividly remember um, going down the stairs and having um, uh, some lawyers coming down there with their nice fancy shoes, and there was a bit of a deliberation where the, where the ladies were like, oh, I don't want to get my shoes wet. Should we carry on down and should we take our shoes off?
1: He makes his way down the pitch-black stairwell and heads for his office in Tramway Lane.
5: Walked through Cathedral and obviously saw the Cathedral in Ruins and got a couple of quick photos and thought, OK, this is is a little bit worse than what we were um, really
1: thinking. Mark checks on fellow workers and his next thought is the gondola itself, a major tourist attraction perched 445 metres above sea level on Mount Cavendish, on the top of the port hills.
5: Obviously, the next reaction was, okay. well, I've got to get back to work. Um, Obviously, not knowing where the um, epicentre of the whole thing was, you know, at that stage, I think, okay, I'd better get back to work and make sure everything's okay over there.
1: Further west from the gondola and along the port hills is Kashmir. Garth Galloway's at home there and actually thinking about the last big earthquake that struck in September 2010. No one died then, but it was a big one. On
6: the day of the earthquake, I had taken the day off, been to see the doctor, had a throat infection, and went home. And Lisa and I were at our house in Hackthorne Road, and we'd just spoken to the assessor from the Earthquake Commission who had phoned, having just been to see us to assess the damage after the September earthquake. And he had told us that we were going to get $150,000, and we were delighted because we couldn't believe how much we were getting so we headed around the house to spend the money and at that stage sitting down in our stone room the earthquake struck. and looking back now i i think the thing that struck me about it was the violence of it and the just thinking it's an aftershock and how long is it going to go on for and i've heard lots of people saying that they couldn't move during it or if they tried to walk they struggled and Looking back, I think Lisa and I just remained absolutely anchored to the spot and we couldn't have moved. And it was obvious to me straight afterwards that we would never get back into our house again, that it was final.
1: The earthquake stops and it's probably only a few moments before people start coming out of their homes and converging on Hackthorne Road. Garth's wife heads for the school to find their children but Garth remembers their 95-year-old neighbour is alone across the street.
6: I thought I should go and see her, so I did. And I went into her kitchen, and she was surrounded by chutneys and relishes, as you'd expect of someone of that generation. Broken bottles all over the ground, and I said to her, I'll get something to help you clean up. She was deaf as anything, and she had national radio's news playing at a volume, which must have been on a battery because the power had gone. It was so loud. And I can remember giving her a fright when I walked in there. And I said, we'll get some stuff to clean up. And so I raced out the door to do that. And that's when the second aftershock hit. And I went out and back into her house. And by then, she had made her way through to the sitting room. And there was just dust and things everywhere. She was on her knees. So I picked her up and said, we've got to get out of here. And I put her through my arm and we walked out as a bride and groom would, down the aisle. And we got to the front door and looked out onto Hackthorne Road. And she looked at me and said, where are we going to go? And I thought, that's a good question, I've got no idea. So I said, there's a park next door, why don't we sit there? And she said, no, I'm going to go back inside. And I looked at her and said, I suppose you got through the war. And she said, I did, and I'll get through this. And with that, she disappeared.
1: Back in Sumner on the Captain Thomas track, wedged under a slight cutaway in the bank and now pinned by a tree, Morag Aldridge is braced for impact, waiting for a rock to come. And then it just
2: stopped. And I just curled up there for about two or three seconds and thought, has it stopped, has it stopped? And then I didn't know whether to move or... So it was quite... I felt quite safe where I was then. I thought, "Is there more to come?" And I thought, "Oh, I have to get, I have to get out, I have to get out." And I tried to get out and couldn't, couldn't move the the trees. So I started breaking branches and um, stood up. And I just looked around and it was just on either side, just probably about six or seven meters wide, just rocks, branches, bushes flattened um just debris everywhere and I you know, I thought oh, you know just got to get out of here so I just ran down the slope I mean and it's funny I went back you know probably about a month later and how do we look around to where it was and you know I was on my hands and knees because it was so steep but then I just ran straight down you know just jumping down and I got to the bottom there was just this lady who must have been sort of in her 60s just standing at the bottom with her arms out to me just going oh my god are you all right I was just like totally speechless and she just gave me this massive hug and then you know we sort of separated and I looked around and just there was all these rocks all through her garden she was just standing in her back garden and into the back of her house like you could see straight into her living room and you know the house of the rocks were essentially sort of probably about the size between the size of small barbecues and you know half a car absolutely massive just everywhere and I sort of was like oh my god are you all right look at your house oh my god
1: you know is there someone with you and she said no but you know, my son will come, my son will come. So Moreg heads off, running to get back to her children, relieved to have escaped, but unaware of what's unfolding in the city.
2: And I still thought at that time that I was the unluckiest person in Christchurch, that I, I still thought an aftershock had weakened
1: a cliff face and, you know, that maybe everyone else was completely unaffected. But over the hill in the port of Littleton, Brent Fraser's under no illusions. Stories are starting to emerge about the bigger impact on Christchurch, what's happened in the CBD, and that will drive people back into the heart of the city.
3: About half an hour later I got a text to say buildings had collapsed in Christchurch, right in the in the CBD and there'd been a lot of fatalities. My biggest fear was for my daughter because I knew she was in there in the old brick building at the CPIT. She's studying journalism there. She'd only been there four days and I, of course I couldn't get in contact with her He wouldn't let us off the ship because they wanted to move the ship. He wanted to actually take it out into the harbour. And I said, no, we have to get off. I have to get off the ship. And of course we'd given them our our passports when we got on. And he said, no, you can't get off. And the reason was because one of the big uh, cranes behind it was threatening to fall on the ship. So he reluctantly agreed just to move the ship 90 meters down the wharf, which was great, but we were still there for two hours. And by then, Channel 9 in Australia, whom I work for, they were able to contact me, but I couldn't contact anybody. And I was doing live crosses into Australia and I was breaking down and crying. Actually, it's, it's affecting me a bit now. Just thinking back and not knowing about Leela, that really upset me.
1: It's another two hours before Brent hears anything from Leela and the rest of his family, around three o'clock, and then probably four o'clock before he manages to make it back into Christchurch.
3: Of course, then I could see the devastation. And when we arrived on Morehouse Avenue, I mean, the liquefaction and just everything, it was so horrendous.
1: It was a horrendous journey back into town. June Barrett and Sumner, hoping to make the same journey and get back to Christchurch.
4: My red bus was coming round the corner further along the road. So I left the the lady I'd been comforting and I went screeching down the road like a banshee, screaming, stop, 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 stop. She stopped and I ran round the front of the bus and I said, get me back to
1: the city quickly. It's a journey she won't forget.
4: The roads were cracked, broken, drains were spewing, sewers were spewing. There was a dog running along the road, big old Labrador. And I said, get the dog, get the dog. She said, can't have dogs on the bus. And I knew that you couldn't, but it was it was surreal, the whole thing. And there was a lot of um, liquefaction everywhere. The ground continued to shake and the bus bus continued to shake violently. Um, and by this time, traffic was quite nose to tail, people trying to get back into town. And uh, we were diverted off the Sumner Road before the Ferrymead Ferry Bridge because the bridge was broken. And we went round to the Port Hills Road. And uh, she had been asking me to, could she stop the bus? Could she stop the bus? And I said, no, don't stop, don't stop. Keep going. The boulders are falling. When we got around um, on Port Hills Road, she said, "Could ask me, could she stop? And I said, just a minute, I had a look. I'd even move to the right-hand side of the bus so that if a boulder did fall and hit the bus, it would take that side, not my side. And we were going to go under a train bridge at one stage. And the train was stationary above it. And of course, the ground was still moving violently. And I said, stop, 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 stop. I said, don't go under the train bridge. I said, wait, wait till the traffic's gone and then put your foot down and go. So it was a screaming to and fro. She was screaming, I was screaming at her and she was screaming at everything. She was very, very distressed. But I was trying to keep her going to get back into town.
1: They approach the central city and the liquefaction and water get worse.
4: And I remember saying to the driver, please don't go through the liquefaction. It might be a crater underneath and you'll go nose in. You don't know what's underneath. I said, drive on the other side of the road. And so damage was horrendous, and um, the AMI stadium was a mess. So I got off the bus that was as far as she was allowed to take me, at the corner of Fitzgerald and Morehouse. And I uh, tried to cross the road, and I remember in the middle of Morehouse Avenue, hugging the the lamppost as another quake hit to stop myself being flung to the ground. And I walked up Fitzgerald, little way and along Ferry Road, and then back down Barbados Street to look at the Basilica. And I just stood there and cried, such a mess, such a beautiful, beautiful building.
5: Had a friend's car, they were parked on Fitzgerald Ave and we started driving through all the liquefaction and water and sewerage.
1: Around the time June makes the journey back into town, Mark Forster's heading in the opposite direction.
5: I think it took about, not even sure now, probably about an hour to get over to the gondola. Once we got there, the guys were at that stage in the process of just about to rescue the only people that were stuck in the cabins.
1: Luckily, low cloud means it's been a quiet day on the gondola.
5: So we only had two people online, thankfully. Um, They were just out the front of the building.
1: The team swings into gear.
5: Effectively, one climbs a tower, attaches a little unit which we slide down to the cabins. Uh, they then uh, climb back down the tower and we winch them up on top of the um, cabins. They then lower themselves into the cabins, open the door, uh, put a harness on the people that are in there and then lower them down to the ground. Once that's been done, they then abseil down themselves. So in one aspect, we were really, really lucky. Um, Nick, who was um, the rescuer on the day, uh, the role of the rescuer, uh, he was basically standing on top of the cabin there of every aftershock. We were out on the hillside. He was, you know, oh, there's rocks coming and pointing in which direction for us to run to get away from them. So it was, you, know, you look back and think like it was pretty freaky. And I won't say stupid because, you know, your, your priority is to get people out and make sure everyone's safe. Um, but, yeah, you look at some of the size of these boulders that are sitting in the, in the hillside and in the paddock just above where we are and think like well, if they carried on, you know, there's some there's some big boulders there, you know sort of anywhere between 4 and 10 tonnes that are, you know, just rolling down the hill.
1: Then there's the Gondola's summit building at the top of Mount Cavendish, which is almost too close to the action.
5: You're talking to the guys who are actually there at the time. They were, um, at the time, the obviously the whole whole building shook. Um, the actual um, earthquake was sent at about 500 metres in a direct line from where the Gondola building is. So for us it was pretty close. Uh, as far as damage goes to the building, it was... It was great. It was hardly anything really. It was um, stood up very, very well.
1: Again, they're lucky. They have just nine visitors up top and nine staff too.
5: So it was sort of a one per, one per one basis. Uh, at that time, as the cloud was there. Um, the guys met, got everybody out onto the hillside, which is the evacuation point, and obviously from there they walked down, walked down to the summit road. Um, two of the guys then walked round to check on the um, towers and the cabins and obviously just as they got to the road there they obviously heard more of the boulders rolling rolling down the hill so obviously for them it was okay we've got to go and check this out um went around there and saw the summit road completely covered with boulders uh, all come from the ridge above Um, so they basically just walked down the walk down the line which is um, pretty amazing feat, really Um, you know you've got an unstable hillside there and their priority was to make sure people were, were safe on the line there was no one on there so, um, so they walked all the way down, two of them, um, and the guys that were up at the road had um, lots of people coming up from uh, Mount Pleasant, driving up, trying to get over to Littleton, and obviously having to turn around to, to drive back down again. So we ended up getting, you know, each car to try and take two people back to the Gondola Bay Station to get them down the hill, which went really, really well. And from that point there, obviously tried to work out how to best get them back to town or where to go from there, because a lot of them were staying, or well, the people that were actually. Um, Visitors obviously had accommodation in the CBD, so a couple of the guys took um, sort of like two people home each and put them up for the night.
1: By now, Brent Fraser's reconnected with his daughter Leela. She's made her way back through broken city streets to her mother's house in Miravale. It's about five o'clock, and Channel 9 is calling wanting a live interview with both Brent and Leela from inside the city's police cordon.
3: And of course, I said to Leela, Well, obviously, I'm going to have to work on this and uh, we went home and by then it was about five o'clock and Ray called and said, look, we would like Leela to partake as well. Well, by then, the four avenues was completely blocked off with police and the army. And I tried to get in because what had happened earlier in the day, my cameraman was right in in front of the TBNZ building. And also uh, we had our satellite dish there. Ray got in before the cordons got in that were put up. So that was fortunate, but I couldn't get in.
0: The middle of town was all cordoned off. Fraser, And we were going up to the policemen and they were saying, no, no, no leather, no media. And I remember very vividly, uh, we went up to the cordon near the South City Mall and I can just remember seeing this helicopter with monsoon buckets flying over the city And I just couldn't believe that I could have been eating lunch where that was going on. And later we found out that that was obviously going to the CTV building. But at that point, we had no idea of what had actually happened. So we drove around for another two hours and we had no luck. And Dad said, look, Leila, you know, we'll try one more time. And if we don't get in this time, we'll give up.
3: And then, in the end, I just had to give up. I said to Channel Line, I said, look, they're not going to let me in. And we were driving down Rickerton Road to drive home. And then I said, Leela, I don't give in. I said, I can't just give up like this.
1: And they drive back into town.
0: Drove up to the cordon on Manchester Street.
3: And I said, look, I need to get in there. And they said, no, it is far, far too dangerous. We're simply not going to let you in. And I saw a truck coming out, and he turned out to be one of the rescue workers.
0: And the police were distracted, and so was the army.
3: So I climbed under the cordon, to absolutely broke the rules, and I rushed up to the truck and I said, would you please take me into Gloucester Street? No, it's far too dangerous. And I said, no. I explained to him that I had a camera in there and a, a satellite dish, and I needed to get there. And this is about five minutes before going on air.
0: And Dad ran up to him and he goes, oh, please, can you let us in? We have to be on the news in five minutes, you know. The guy was quite reluctant, but I think he was just kind of taken by what was going on, that he just said, "Okay."
3: He said, "Okay, jump in. I called out, Leela, Leela, quick, run over, get in. And the policeman saw us and he said, stop, come back here, you're not to go. And I said, please, just ignore the policeman. Pretend you don't know he's telling you to stop. Turn around and go. And he did. And he drove us in there. So we were so lucky.
0: So we were driving through and the sights I saw were just absolutely crazy. Just buildings that you're quite familiar with living in Christchurch your whole life. Just completely in ruins.
1: Eventually I had to go off Barbados. It was just too messy. June Barrett, now back in the city, but still trying to get home
4: and I crossed over to Manchester Street and there I saw the director of my choir further ahead and I screamed out to him and his car was parked at St. Mary's in Manchester Street and he, bless him, drove me home. It was a slow journey, but uh, the presbytery at Manchester Street had collapsed in on the south, but everywhere there was damage and devastation. <laughs> and I saw the smoke coming up from, I knew later it was a CTV building. I always felt unsafe in that building. I'd gone there for earthquake counseling on the fifth floor and I had to get out of it because it was trembling. It was very, very unsafe and to think all those people died in there, it's just
7: awful.
0: arrived to where all the media was set up, which was in a car park opposite the TVNZ building. Fraser. And I was quite familiar with that area because my dad used to work there. And there was a brick building which he used to work in, it was his office. And that was just completely destroyed, bricks just everywhere. Uh, We even saw a van that had been crushed by these bricks, and it was just absolutely horrific. And one of my biggest fears was that this TVNZ building, which we were opposite to, had huge cracks down it. And I was sort of thinking, well, the likelihood of an aftershock will be pretty high. What's the chances that that could actually fall on top of us?
3: Three minutes before we're due to go on air, I phoned my boss in Australia and he said, look, oh, Brent, Brent, look, we're panicking. We haven't got anyone yet. I said, well, you've got me. I've, I arrived, I'm here. What? And he was so excited. And then a minute before we were due to go on air, they said, we'll get you to do your live cross first and then interview your daughter. And then Leela started freaking out. She said, Dad, I can't do it. And I said, Leela, if you want to do this as a career, here's your chance. It's a golden opportunity. I said, talk from the heart and you'll be fine. And she was. She was word perfect, basically.
0: Dad and I were on the news and Dad interviewed me live about my earthquake story and then we did another pre-record. Dad went on to do a few more items, but I had to wait, and it started raining, and I just remember thinking, like, I was actually so taken back by what I was experiencing. It all seemed so surreal. We ended
3: up in there until about 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night, and as you know, it rained like hell. It was freezing cold, and it was baptism by fire for Leela, and that's that's my story.
1: It's one of many that unfold in Christchurch that day, but they all have slightly different endings. June Barrett is finally home, reflecting on a devastating day, but one where people showed themselves at their best.
4: One of the overriding memories of that day was the kindness of strangers, the hugs. People were hugging everybody. I got so many hugs from strangers, and... I'm alive and I've come through all of this now and I'm still here, so God's got another
1: plan for me. <laughs> but I'm not coping with the shakes very well at all. Morag Aldridge reconnects with her family. As
2: I got upset, the kids got a wee bit upset and I just thought, look, I've actually got to keep it together here a bit. And, you know, the, it just became about tidying up, making the place safe for us to stay there and our neighbours to stay there and make sure that every, everyone was all right. And they were. We were very lucky.
1: Ten years on, what do you do with that luck? How does the experience change the way you live? We've gone back to some of our interviewees to find out what's happened for them since that unforgettable day a decade ago. For Mark Forster, the immediate effect of the quake was that the gondola got mothballed and his staff were all laid off. But ten years on, the tourist attraction is now back on its feet. Mark is still general manager and he's done a bit in his personal life. He's got married, travelled, bought a few houses and just got on with living. He sometimes wonders though if there were other things he could have done that day.
7: At the time, could I have spent more time in the central city trying to help people out? Uh, yes, I could have. Um, my priority at the time was obviously to check on my workmates um, and get back over to the gondola. Um, yeah, look, I had a debrief of uh, one of my friends at the time, and he was working in the central city with um, building construction, and he was there at the TGG site, and he was holding hands with people as they um, were unable to get them out. So, you know. We had a debrief, his stories were obviously completely different to mine. Um, again, to him, that was his work area, that's where he was and he was doing the best that he could. Uh, mine wasn't as graphic, it was dealing with, um, I guess, the sight of people, that people were here, but we needed to get them back and get them safely back to their accommodation, get them out of the cabins which were trapped. So, yeah, dif- different scenarios and, and I'd look at that and think, wow, you, you did so much more than what I did. I, I felt like I didn't do much and um, it felt quite insignificant in comparison.
1: It was the aftershocks that day that most bothered Mark, but that didn't stop him visiting Te Papa's earthquake house when he went to Wellington.
7: I always vividly remember there were some people and they were from somewhere in the North Island and they were like, oh, is this all it is? Oh, people in Christ should just say, "You know, they're, they're whining about things and I think you've got no idea. You've got a, a little shake here, which is, yes, it's sort of, it shows you what it's like, but it's those ongoing after, you know, the aftershocks and what's actually going to happen. I mean, it was a staged environment where it was. So, yeah, it was it was a, quite a vivid memory, that one, for me as well, thinking, yeah, no, this is way more than what these uh, actually sort of show up on these little attraction things.
1: Going to Te Papa was about getting on with life.
7: I don't believe in being scared of things. Life is very short. You don't want to be scared of too many things. You've got to sort of overcome challenges, overcome fear, and the best way of doing that is if you fall off a bike, you get straight back on that bike and start pedalling.
1: Morag Aldrich says that for her, life has just carried on. She's had another baby since the quake, still works at Christchurch Public Hospital, and still lives in the same house in Sumner. She doesn't dwell on the day of the quake. My personal experience
2: was, um, I mean, weeks afterwards, feeling that you were checking out every rock wall that you were near or every enclosed space and every exit and everything. But I think that's what everyone in Christchurch was doing. You kind of had to feel, like, where's where's the escape route if anything happens? Where's The door frame I'm supposed to go under, where's the table I'm supposed to go under? But I think I didn't dwell too much on, on that experience, it sort of became a a story that was useful to pull out. Um, it didn't, I didn't feel you know a few months afterwards that it was having any negative impact. When I started doing the odd walk or run up there again,
1: I started feeling, oh, is, this, is this wise? But that. But soon left. Her strongest memory of the day actually has nothing to do with her near-death experience.
2: The worst thing about the whole entire day was when it got dark and we were in the house with no electricity, with a couple of candles, Our, we'd taken in a family from up the hill whose house had just completely disintegrated. Um we were just kind of having pasta in the the kitchen cooked off the barbecue and I just remember it's pitch dark outside. And then suddenly all these helicopters started flying around and they were had searchlights and they were searching all the hillsides and I think looking for houses to see if they'd collapsed and just try and assess the damage. And you know, the kids were scared and you know, the family that we'd taken in were quite stressed because of their house situation and everything just felt really sort of fraught and the kids were scared to go to bed and we were scared to go to bed and I just remember looking outside at these sort of searchlights and thinking, jeez, it's a war zone out there. Like, I just didn't know what to expect. Like, we had no media, we had nothing. We had just just our little survival mode in, in Sumner. Um, and I would say that was a feeling, a really sort of despairing feeling of, holy shit, what's tomorrow going to bring? Because, you know, you've just got through that day and you're worried about going to bed and thinking, what's daylight going to bring? What's the damage going to look like?
1: The sense of community in her neighbourhood has grown.
2: We have a get-together, a street get-together every sort of three or four months and pop round to someone's house for a coffee morning and, you know, we have a WhatsApp group that just sort of keeps an eye on what's going on and passes on any information. And um, I know all my neighbours. You know, it's just, it's a nice feeling that I don't think I would ever have had in the UK. You know, that feeling of feeling quite connected to everyone in the street and knowing who everyone is. we just moved into our house three weeks before the earthquake. So, um, in fact, when our neighbour ran round to check on us, it was the first time they'd
1: met her. So. <laughs> there have been changes. Morag's emergency kit is well-stocked, mostly, and she never lets her phone battery run down. But her close call on a Sumner hillside is now not much more than a good story she's told a lot.
2: I find a mind so it becomes your trauma narrative, and it just—I mean, I haven't—I haven't told that story for many years now. But um, yeah, I don't—I don't tell it any differently to how I tell it to the interview. It's almost word for word.
1: But she can still remember the sadness she felt at the idea of not seeing her children again. I mean, I
2: do remember that as the
1: overwhelming.
2: You know, the yeah. I mean, as I say, it wasn't it wasn't fear. it was just like,, oh, it's all come to this, and this is happening now, you know, jeez, um and just that feeling of complete you know sadness that I wasn't you know wasn't going seen in the game. Yeah. but
1: no, I don't uh, I probably don't dwell on the emotional stuff so much. Morag still goes up the Captain Thomas' trek when she can. I go up Captain Thomas's probably once a week with the dog.
2: It's just fine. It doesn't, it doesn't bother me. I look at the scar on the hillside and go, oh, it's not overgrown, but you can see where the rocks have fallen off. It just, it has, Yeah, as I say, it now feels it's just taken on a sort of story of its own that it's happened to someone else.
1: Many people are changed on February the 22nd, 2011. As the sun goes down that day, one of the few buildings visible in the darkness is the flattened remains of 233 Cambridge Terrace.
0: I just remember going past what we knew later was the PGC building.
1: Leela Fraser.
0: And we just saw this highlighted, ruined building with these big spotlights over it and all these sort of rescue workers spotting around the building looking for people. And I just, I will always remember that image, because at that point we actually had no idea that it was the PGC building, that there were so many people who died in that building. But it was just horrific to me that that was happening in my city.
1: In our next episode, we tell the story of that building, the PGC building in downtown Christchurch, where 18 people lost their lives.
6: And I looked down Manchester Street and I just had this mental image of what it must have been like in the Blitz, in the Second World War. It was a war zone. I think every 20 minutes or so I just screamed my lungs out. I was just in so much pain. I'm sitting there thinking, where do I start here?
0: And I was really scared that our floor was going to give out and um, that would be the end. I started the regret process of, I wish I'd done this with my life. I wish I'd told my family that I loved them that one last
1: time. Those stories next time on Fragments, first-hand accounts of the February 2011 earthquake. Fragments is written and presented by me, Katie Gossett, and co-produced by myself and Justin Gregory. It's engineered by Alex Harmer and Rangi Powick, and Tim Watkin is the executive producer of podcasts and series. Thanks to Julie Hutton and Sandra Close for their work in recording interviews, and to Nate McKinnon for additional recording and video work. We'd also like to thank Morag Aldridge, Brent Fraser, Leela Fraser, June Barrett, Mark Forster and Garth Galloway for sharing their personal stories to create this record of the fatal Christchurch earthquake on February the 22nd, 2011.